Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Coming up on the show today, City Journal's assistant editor, Charles McElwee, will interview contributing editor John Tierney about John's latest essay for the magazine called A Renaissance Runs Through It, What Pittsburgh's Latest Comeback Tells Us About Urban Revitalization. Both Charles and John are natives of Pennsylvania, and they're excited to talk about their beloved home state and one of its big cities on the podcast. John's essay was recently adapted in the Wall Street Journal, and we'll link to both the long piece and the adaptation in the description. One announcement before we get started, City Journal readers will be happy to know that we're in the middle of production of the autumn 2019 issue. We have a super strong lineup for the issue, including a powerful essay by Heather McDonald on homelessness and crime in San Francisco, Kay Heimowitz on a remarkable trade school just outside of Philadelphia, and Eric Kober on Long Island City after Amazon, among much else. That's it for me. The conversation between Charles McElwee and John Tierney begins after this. the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is your host for today, Charles McElwee, Assistant Editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is John Tierney. John is a contributing editor at City Journal and a contributing science columnist for the New York Times, where he was a reporter for many years. You can also follow him on Twitter, at John Tierney, NYC. John's here today to discuss his latest piece, which appears in the summer 2019 issue of City Journal. A renaissance runs through it. It's an essay about Pittsburgh's history of rebirths and urban planning. The essay explores Pittsburgh's latest comeback and what it means for other cities. John, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Charles. John, in addition to us both being affiliated with City (laughs) Journal, we're both native Pennsylvanians. You grew up in Pittsburgh. I grew up over three hours east in Hershey. But you also, uh, your childhood was in the East Liberty neighborhood. And remarkably, you point this out in the essay, East Liberty once had the largest business district in Pennsylvania behind Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. What led to the neighborhood's decline, and what were the historical forces behind it? Well, um, after World War II, it had been the third busiest retail district after the downtowns. And But after World War II, people started shopping in the suburbs. In fact, some of the first malls were out, you know, were outside Pittsburgh, the Miracle Mile there. And... Um, and uh, Um, So they were losing business, and of course people were moving to the suburbs for new homes too. Pittsburgh was losing population, you know, in the 50s. Um, And the merchants, you know, worried, what can we do about this? We're losing people, we're losing customers. So they, and this was the era, you know, when uh, for master planning for great urban renewal, and they went to the city and said, we'd like to compete with the suburbs. So and and uh, and so the brilliant idea they that they had was well if they're going to the suburbs we'll we'll turn East Liberty into an outdoor mall it seemed like a good idea at the time and you know and I have to say I was there and I worked in a drugstore in East Liberty and uh, it, you know it seemed I mean the you know the master plans are kind of gleaming things that this is so up to date and modern and I th- and it seemed to me like a good idea. Uh, the owners of the drugstore hated it. They're saying, what are they doing? To, you know, they're, they're closing the streets, turn it in, into a pedestrian mall. They're rerouting traffic. They, they did this little mini beltway around the whole thing. And, and it was the largest urban renewal probably. It was and, yeah, more than 250 acres. Incredible. 
Yeah, you, your statistics are remarkable. 1,200 homes, it forced out 4,000 residents, displaced nearly 600 businesses. And really what resulted was drug dealers and crime replaced the middle-class families and retail, correct? Exactly. Now, it was amazing to see uh, to see what happened because they, they had these pedestrian malls and we had these visions that, oh, it'll be this wonderful urban thing like an Italian piazza. They actually had a, a sculpture called Joy of Life that was that, that the sculptor had the idea that, you know, this would be kind of, you know, have that street life, which is a wonderful vision. But as I say in the City Journal article, you know, those dancers they had in this Joy of Life could look lonelier and lonelier as went on because the place was just so empty. People, um, I mean, people couldn't figure out how to get where they were going. They changed the streets. The, the pedestrian malls just... Um, you know, once the cars were gone, the place felt so empty. It just and it looked emptier than ever, and it started you know feeling scary at night because you were just out in this big space. And and as part of this redevelopment, you know they they cleared dozens of blocks of buildings. You know, you know they got rid of some historic things. They rerouted the streets. They put in big parking lots, and they also put in because there was a lot of federal money for for, for housing. They put in three high-rise housing projects, like you know sixteen, seventeen stories. So before all this happens, I mean, it, it, it appeared that redevelopment was was fashionable in the city long before other cities. That you, you talk about in 1943, uh, the corporate establishment met the William Penn Hotel downtown. The Mellon family was uh, members of the Mellon family were there, and they were talking about the city's future. So was the initial Renaissance? Did that work? Was it ahead of its time? What? happened in between that initial renaissance when Time Magazine had uh, Richard Mellon on the cover and when Jane Jacobs arrived in the early 60s and said that Pittsburgh was a city being rebuilt by city haters. Right. Well, Pittsburgh was the you know was a great pioneer in in, in renaissances, and the, you know it was was called the Smoky City. And what happened was Richard Mel Richard King Mellon, one of the ten richest people in the country, and he and his family, a three was a three other Mellons were also on that list. So and they controlled much of the Pittsburgh economy through loans and and stock holdings, and. I, you know, there are various legends what happened. One is that his wife just said to him, I, you know, I can't live in Pittsburgh. And, you know, I, I just don't want it. it and, but they also realized, that, you know, the, these corporate leaders, th th that they couldn't get people to come to Pittsburgh to work because, you know, either the, you know, the, the um, guys, it was mostly guys at that time, didn't want to come or their wives refused to come. So they thought we have to clean up the air, you know, because it, it was, you know, it was famous then you had to change your shirts, you know, you know, once or twice a day because it got so filthy from the air and, uh, and, you know, and the rivers were polluted. So they, it was partly out of self-interest, you know, that, uh, that we want to be able to, uh, to recruit people and, and a lot of civic pride too, I think, that people wanted to make it a better city. So, and it was really, um, you know, Time Magazine called it an experiment in a, in a new and wiser capitalism. Um, and the idea was that these industrial titans all got together at the William Penn Hotel and Mellon got, you know, they couldn't say no to Mellon. And, he's, and they basically said, we're going to lobby for regulations that, is, that are going to cost our businesses a lot of money. We're going to put all these new you know, soot and smoke controls. We're going to clean up the water. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and Mellon, he, um, uh, at one point, the Pennsylvania Railroad didn't like it because they had coal-burning locomotives, and they also hauled a lot of coal. And, uh, and, you know, and, and the story is that Mellon called up the president of the Pennsylvania Railroad and said, you know, the Mellon Enterprises, we can ship our stuff on other railroads. 
So. And you paint a contrast between two urban renewal examples, one that worked and the other did not, the, the, the point, the right. Golden Triangle, then Mellon Square. So what worked in Mellon Square that didn't work at, at the point? Uh, well, Mellon Square was this block that did a lot of it was a parking lot. And, and the Mellon Foundation put up their own money, did they, and they paid to, you know, to buy up those buildings and then to build this. It was one of the first you know, sort of city plazas with a parking garage underground. You know, they moved it there and they put a plaza there. And it was right in the middle of downtown. It was an appealing you know, plaza. And um, you had to walk down some steps to get to it. And when Jane Jacobs, when she first was writing about cities in the 1950s, and, 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 and her first, uh, her seminal essay really was in 1957, where, because she had been covering, you know, and Pittsburgh was a big leader. It started in the 40s, and then other cities started, um, you know, going along too. And she had been writing about them, thinking, oh, this is great. It all sounds like a great plan to clean up cities. But she started noticing how dead some of these places were. And she noticed in Pittsburgh, that people were going to Mellon Square, it was right in the street grid, it was there, they would spend, you know, they'd go out there for lunch. But meanwhile, down at the point, you know, that's the place where the, uh, the Ohio and the Monongahela Rivers meet to form the Ohio, I'm sorry, the Monongahela and the Allegheny meet to form the Ohio. Um, they cleared, you know, like 59 acres down there. And, and there were some, you know, you know, rundown buildings. There was an old could have, um, a train terminal. And they put in a park with the fountain, the one you see when you see the Steeler games on TV, you see the Golden Triangle. And it did make for great photographs from, you know, uh, from the air from Mount Washington right across the thing. But what she also noticed is part of that, so some of the stuff really worked in the first Renaissance, cleaning the air, cleaning the water. Um, getting a park. But even the park, I have to say, I worked at the Pittsburgh Press, and which is right, it's one of the few buildings that remained anywhere near that. They tore everything else down. The right. press was just sitting there right across the street from the park. And I think I went into it like twice the whole time. I, and nobody ever went into it. It was like this big, beautiful, empty park. Lonely space. Yeah, yeah, there was nothing. There was a fountain there. and The Hilton but, Hotel. Yeah, 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 yeah. But, but it was very dead around there. I mean, nobody ever, I mean, you would turn the other direction when you left the building. So even then it's, you know, I had the feeling this isn't, you know, it's it, it looks nice, but it's not very lively. And as part of that whole development, they built this gateway center, which were these towers in the park. That was the, the reigning architectural ideal that you had high rises surrounded by greenery. And there was the Hilton Hotel, and there, and there were these buildings that were corporate towers and apartments. And it looked great. They had an underground mall. But Jane, you know, Jane Jacobs realized nobody wants to go there. You know, she's saying Pittsburghers, they'll walk up these steps to go to Mellon, you know, Mellon Square, but they're just avoiding, you know, they won't cross the street to go into Gateway Center. And that's where she started getting some of her ideas in, in this essay she wrote called Downtown for People. But I think it was seeing that because Pittsburgh was one of the first seeing that this master planning and the towers in the park, it's not really how people like their cities to right. be. So well-intentioned but ill-advised. Yes. So fast forward by the time, by the 1980s, the steel industry had collapsed. Pittsburgh was really falling apart, shedding population. Right. It's remarkable to think that the city once had over 670,000 people. But we, we look, at the, look to the East Liberty neighborhood, and it's now ridden with crime, blight, all, all, all the signs of economic decline. So during this period, by the early 2000s, we were looking at what another renaissance with the formation of the East Liberty Development Incorporation. So what 
decisions were made about 25 years ago, 20 years ago, that were different from earlier eras? What was unfolding? Um, well, people had, had learned by this time, thanks to Jane Jacobs and others, and just by being there, that simply, you know, raising cities and putting up these master plans with towers um, didn't make for, you know, for a neighborhood people wanted to be in. And, you know, besides East Liberty, they had also torn down uh, um, a big section of the Hill District, the famous black neighborhood in Pittsburgh, and and displaced people there. And they had this idea there'd be a cultural acropolis up on the hill where the Civic Arena um, was. And it just became mired in parking lots. And Jane Jacobs knew that wasn't going to work either. So by 2000, and they'd seen what happened to East Liberty. You know, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette had a headline in 2000. They did a great series of articles on 2000 on looking at these renewals. And... Um, and uh, and the headline was the land that retail forgot. You know, I mean, the drugstore I worked. You know, uh, there was a a fire of mysterious origin in the building. I uh, uh, although, as I say, maybe not so mysterious because everybody was just clearing out. So this neighborhood group, the Chamber of Commerce, started. It was a nonprofit group, and they, you know, their mission was they started trying to redevelop the some of the historic buildings there. And uh, uh, they bought some up. They tried to get developers and tenants to come in. Um, they succeeded in getting cars back on the street to get those dread pedestrian malls. You know, I mean, it made it easier for shoppers to get there. It, made, it gave some life to the streets. Um, but they were having a hard time because and they still had that idea that we should um, – you know, work on these beautiful buildings at the center. There's a beautiful Gothic church there that the Mellons built. There was this Highland building. Um, there was just a beautiful, old, you know, old high rise, and that had been empty for you know ten or fifteen years. And uh, uh, Daniel Burnham, the architect, had built that, and 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 they wanted to revive these things. The old YMCA was kind of a nice old classic building, and it all was empty. But then. You know, but it was just hard to get anyone to go in. People were afraid of crime, and nobody wanted to be, like, in the middle of this dead area. So what they realized, you know, with the help of some consultants was, you know, don't try to remake the whole area. Let's just try to start at the edges because there are some neighborhoods next to Highland Park. That's really where, my, uh, where I lived, and and, uh, and Shadyside, which were relatively affluent neighborhoods. So they got Home Depot and Whole Foods to locate right there, and, it's, and it started to feel a little, you know, they're inching into East Liberty, and you could get people to do that. And that was working somewhat. And then, but they also realized we've got to do something about crime. So they worked with, you know, this group, um, ELDI, worked with um, other nonprofit groups, and they, and they managed to, to tear down these, uh, you know, these subsidized uh, high-rises, which, you know, by this time, in, you know, by the 90s, the, the police were calling. There was so much drug dealing and crime going on that the police referred to these high-rises as the crack stacks. And, um, I mean, as a kid, you know, when I walked home from grade school, you know, we'd all walk through East Liberty on our way home, and it was fine. And, you know, but, but by the time I'd grown up, you know, you know parents wouldn't changed. let their kids go through, especially at night. You know, people were afraid. Um, so they, you know, wanted to fight crime and, 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 and tearing down the housing projects and moving people into mixed-income developments. There's some nice, you know, you know, really nice new ones there that look great. They're well-maintained, and, and uh, that works some. But they noticed 
on their own. They had never heard of a theory called hotspot policing, but they had noticed that, cri- that crimes kept happening in the same places, most crimes, and, you know, and, and they had no idea about, the, about criminologists' research into this, but, but criminologists had found that I think it's something like 50% of crimes happen in 3% of the, of the area in a neighborhood, something like that. And um, so they had noticed this and thought, well, why don't we just buy up these places? Because it was usually a, a dilapidated apartment building or house where it had fallen apart so much that the owner had ceased caring about it. You, and the only people who would rent it basically were people who were who, who wanted an owner who wasn't around so they could be um, conducting their drug business or whatever. So they bought these up and... They hired new property managers, I and mean, the most important thing w- was that they hired off-duty police officers to start patrolling them. And you know, I should say before this, they had tried all the other, the usual things. They they had neighborhood watches. They called nine one one. They met with at the precinct. It didn't work. And he said nothing really. I mean, it would work for a little bit. You know, you, I mean, the, you know, the precinct would send out more people. You do something, but the only thing that worked was when they actually did. This version of it, you know, criminologists call it hotspot policing. It was, this was kind of like real estate hotspot policing. We'll buy up the problem areas and start patrolling them. And it had a dramatic impact. Within four years, crime dropped by, you know, by about 50 percent. That's remarkable. And to think that this neighborhood was improving also while Pittsburgh was <laughs> on the rebound. So Pittsburgh undergoes this economic revival, as you know, and you, you point out two things. It was really a result of a combination of serendipity and philanthropy. And we saw, and, and I guess the serendipity was the emergence of the Marcel Shale industry uh, related to fracking in the 20, early 2010s. And then the University of Pittsburgh medical, care, uh, medical system really took off. And I mean, just last year, I remember reading UPMC, uh, the CEO controversially said he wants UPMC to be the Amazon of healthcare and has expanded statewide, even into my hometown. And UPMC now adorns the top of the former U.S. Steel Building, right. once the it, tallest it, it, skyscraper right. it, It's a great symbol, the symbol it's there, remarkable. because it used to be U.S. Steel, now it's UPMC. But what's very interesting about Pittsburgh is it has benefited from this philanthropy for decades now. Even when the urban renewal efforts fizzled, the philanthropists remained invested in their hometown. Too often you see these cities where the philanthropists, they made their money off of the industries that created that wealth, and more often than not, they left town. I just think of my family's hometown of Hazleton, Mm -hmm. a a bunch of founding families making money off the anthracite coal industry, endowed universities, started foundations in New York and elsewhere, and have left the region. They took the money out of town. Took the money out of town. But the Heinz family, the Mellons, people stay in Pittsburgh, even more so than Philadelphia. What is behind that? Well, you know, some of them did flee. I mean, Andrew Carnegie moved to New York, and, and, and Frick did, too, although his, his daughter went back, and her house is now a museum in Pittsburgh. But they did, you know, but, but they did endow a lot of philanthropy in Pittsburgh. They had foundations. And, uh, you know, the Mellons and others, they gave very lavishly to the University of Pittsburgh, to its medical school. Um, and, you know, the Mellons gave all this money, to, and they had their own institute that merged with Carnegie. It used to be Carnegie Tech. They renamed it Carnegie Mellon. And those schools, you know, this is now called the Eds and Meds. You give to schools and medicine, and they pioneered it. I mean, part of the reason was that in the 40s, they realized that Pittsburgh might not have a steel industry someday. You know, in fact, you know, there were already signs that, that 
Pittsburgh steel industry was not that competitive because there were changes in the way steel was being made. So they did have the foresight to think we've got to do something else. And they also, you know, wanted to have good schools and good, you know, things to attract people to the city. Um, so they so they helped create those, you know, the, turn those schools and those medical facilities there. The, the Heinz family was also, you know, they had originally done this sort of master planning. We're going to build this cultural, this new, we're going to raise this whole neighborhood and, and build, build kind of a Lincoln Center up on top of the hill and turn it into this Acropolis. And that was a fiasco. But so what, the, you know, what the Heinz you know, uh, Foundation started doing was they bought this old theater. In fact, I, uh, the Benenham uh, Theater and I, um, I worked there as an usher when I was in college, and it was okay. funny because people, um, I, I, I remember that everybody would walk in after it was renovated, and the reaction was always the same. It was, you know, they'd go, oh, it's so beautiful, <laughs> you know, that people, and, and the Pittsburgh Symphony was playing there, and, and so that worked very well, and then they started buying up all these properties around that, and this had really been a kind of the red light district or this really kind of bad part of downtown, and it became this big cultural district with, you know, with a half dozen theaters, with restaurants, apartments, and that was just done with the foundations, bought up that property and fixed it up. So, you know, this philanthropy, and, and the great thing about the philanthropy was that so much of it, was, you know, was unexpected, I think. I mean, I, when the Mellons gave this money to, you know, to, uh, to CMU, um, they didn't realize that, you know, that this was going to be this, uh, that his computer science department would be this enormous economic driver, that that, you know, because that became, you know, one of the world leaders, if not the world leader in computer science. So, so it was really market forces rather than urban planning that, that worked. Right. Yeah. Well, um, it happened in two ways. One is that, you know, basically that outside economic forces and, and, and the Pittsburgh was ready to take advantage of this boom in the computer industry because right. they had, I mean, it was the place to go for robotics, for self-driving cars. They were doing the research for it. And also by this time, the good news was that they had stopped, you know, tearing down neighborhoods and putting up these these ersat suburbs, as right. Jane Jacobs called them. And so when Google, I mean, you know, what happened was Google and Amazon, Intel, Disney, they sent people and set up offices on the on the CMU campus, and that because you know, they wanted to tap that computer science talent, and then they started outgrowing those offices, and Google was looking around for a place to go, and just about that time. Um, that was when East Liberty, they, the crime has started coming down. And, you know, um, growing up, I played baseball right across the field from this Nabisco bakery. We used to smell the Ritz crackers and the vanilla wafers in, um, in the field. And it just sat empty for decades, you know, well, I don't know, at least 10, you know, 15 years. And Google and these two brave developers at a company called Walnut Capital they went into there and they decided we're going to turn this into an office building and a hotel. I mean, there had been no hotels in East Liberty in forever, and they did it. And Google, you know, you know, moved into the building, and that just. And then they started building apartment buildings across the street. I still remember my mother calling me and saying, "Would you believe it? In those apartments across from Google, they're charging three thousand dollars for a two-bedroom apartment." And, and if you know Pittsburgh real estate, this is like you can't. That's believe absurd. It. Absurd. That who would ever pay that? Maybe in Swickley, but not <laughs> in Pittsburgh. So really. East Liberty is a gentrified neighborhood now. You have it's still gentrifying, actually. But, but, I, I mean, it's you know, the, it, you know, these stores started in at the outside, and they've been moving more and more in. And finally, these these historic buildings at the center, the Highland Building, where I used to go to the dentist, that used to, it. I mean, not long ago, it had four feet of water in the basement; it had been abandoned. Now, you know, they're running apartments for three thousand dollars a month too. And the old YMCA, which used to, was closed, it used to just be homeless guys passed out on the sidewalk. There's now a valet parking attendant. 
attendant there. It's the Ace Hotel, this very you know cool hotel. So that's happening. It still needs to come back some. I mean, it's not. I mean, it's not like you know Soho right now, but but it really is coming back. And Google. Um, you know, business is so good at the Whole Foods that they want a bigger place to move now. So there's so many shoppers. So it's coming back. But it is attracting the young and affluent, the young professionals. They're working at Google. They're shopping at Trader Joe's. They're, right. they're running errands at Target. But as you point out in the article, even though they're living there and, and embracing this gentrifying neighborhood, they're progressive and angry and resent that very gentrification. And the amusing part is, as we both know, the Philadelphia Federal Reserve recently yeah. released a paper that more or less concluded that gentrification is, in fact, a good thing. So what what has been your takeaway just from your encounters with some of those younger progressives in East Liberty? Well, I was just stunned when I was back there that, it, it, you know, Whole Foods wants to move to a bigger place near the heart of East Liberty. This was the kind of thing everybody in East Liberty was praying for for decades. Could we please get a good store in here instead of everybody leaving? And I was I was there, and there was a, a protest of, of a half dozen or about two dozen people um, against Whole Foods. Like, we can't let them move into this place. And I just thought it was insane. And right. none of the people there, or you know, virtually none of them, were old enough to remember what East Liberty was like. You know, they were just, were against gentrification. We want there to be affordable housing there instead. And it is this idea, you know, that uh, the two lessons from the article that I drew were one, that you should distrust, beware of master planners, especially ones who are spending tax dollars, you know, because they, that's not how cities develop. They need to develop market forces organically, how people do it, not how some guy draws a plan and makes a model of these towers in the park. But then the other lesson, I thought it's great that he's, you know, that they sort of restored East Liberty to what it used to be. They got the streets, the cars back, the street grid, and it feels like um, an old-fashioned neighborhood. And so no sooner do they do that than, than there are people trying to stop it. And it's really, once again, uh, the lesson I took was that the master planners never really go away. They just change tactics. Because, you know, in the 1950s, progressives were sure the way to save cities. We got to bulldoze poor neighborhoods and, you know, and put up housing projects, slum clearance. That was the thing of the day. Well, that turned out to be horribly mistaken. Now they're against that, and they revere Jane Jacobs because she fought against that. But they don't realize. And, but, but so their idea is, though, we're going to not let this neighborhood improve. We're going to just keep it the way it is. We're not going to allow any changes that don't comport with our idea of social justice. And they don't realize that Jane Jacobs would be appalled at that. You know, what she loved was the way neighborhoods change. You, they have to evolve to people's changing needs, and she, th- they should be guided by market forces, not by master planners. And that, that's an important and instructive lesson for other cities. So Pittsburgh's mayor, Bill, Bill Peduto, <laughs> yes. he seems to be following in the path of Bill de Blasio, rather progressive, correct? I mean, could he imperil the city's success, its continued renaissance, with the progressive policies that he supports? Yes, I mean, I think he does. I mean, he. Uh, and when I sat down with him, he's you know a nice guy, and he he told me that Pittsburgh, you know, knows from seeing what's happened in New York and in San Francisco that that the way to deal with housing is not to restrict the supply of it, and that you want to encourage development. That 
Um, and believe me, housing is no problem in Pittsburgh. It's lost half its population. You know, the right. city owns 17,000 properties. So there's no housing shortage in Pittsburgh. There's plenty of it. But he said that he wants to encourage it, but he is a progressive. The city council is very progressive. And so they're adopting all these progressive wish lists that they're, they're about to start doing inclusionary zoning, which forces developers that 10% of your units have to be set aside. And it just drives up the cost of developing. And uh, and it makes it harder to build new stuff and, and, you know, and to renovate things if you have to do that. And then they've also drawn up this progressive checklist. Call, it's called the P4. It's People, Place, Planet, Performance, I think. And it's these 12 things that you know, a project has to come, has to, has to, you know, improve the climate, has to minimize climate impacts, and, and it's got to give ownership positions to my under, to underprivileged population. And it's all these new things that you're, all this new paperwork you're going to have to do to do a project. And, you know, as I say in the article, you know, Manhattan developers, you know, I mean, Bill de Blasio imposes this kind of stuff here. And and you can afford to do that because there's so much money in Manhattan you can charge enough. Of course, we also have a terrible housing shortage. Right. But Pittsburgh just doesn't have that, that kind of money. And it, it's very hard as it is, even though East Liberty has made this great comeback, it's still very hard to build new stuff there because Pittsburgh isn't that, you know, there isn't that much money in Pittsburgh. And the developers, you know, it's hard to, you know, basically to make the numbers work. And you're suddenly adding new obstacles. Well, John, thank you very much for being here today. I enjoyed this conversation, and I hope the the young who live <laughs> in East Liberty, as, as you write in the piece, they look like they're just, they just graduated from Oberlin, and they're desperate for a new cause. I, I hope, hope they find something else. <laughs> I, hope that, I hope they read your essay. Oh, thank so th- you. I thank you, John. And don't forget to check out John Tierney's essay, A Renaissance Runs Through It. It's on our website, www cityjournal.org. You can follow John on Twitter, at John Tierney NYC. We'd also love to hear your comments about the interview today on Twitter, at City Journal. And if you like the show and would like to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. Thanks again for listening, and thank you, John. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.